This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings to the January episode, listeners. I'm news editor Ezie Pearson, and I'm joined on the podcast today by staff writer Ian Todd. Coming up later in the episode, editor Chris Bramley will be talking to reviews editor Paul Money about the stargazing highlights from the last year. And that's along with our best tip for what you can see in this month's night sky. Uh, But in today's episode, we're going to be taking a look back at what's been happening, uh, at least in terms of space, in 2020. It's been a bit of a year um, (laughs) across the board, uh, but fortunately, the the coronavirus pandemic and various other political things haven't stopped people exploring space and the universe around us. Um, So way back at the beginning of the year, uh, on the 30th of May, the company SpaceX launched their first ever crewed mission. This was the Crew Dragon module, which had on board two veteran astronauts, Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken. And on the 30th of May, it launched and it docked with the International Space Station a day later. Um, And those two astronauts stayed on the International Space Station and helped out the other astronauts there for a couple of months before returning on the 2nd of August. And this was the first time that a commercial company had flown people in space um, and brought them back safely, obviously. (laughs) Um, And it it really marks the sort of start of what people are hoping is going to be a much more open approach to space flight. Because now, in theory, anybody could buy, if you have a few spare billion on your hands anyway, <laughs> could buy a seat on one of these flights and, and potentially fly to the International Space Station. There are plans for a mission to fly around the moon and come back. When that will actually happen is a different question. Um but the idea is that it's going to, to democratise space if you have the money <laughs> um, a lot more. Yeah, um, I, I suppose the the other big aspect of that story is that it's um, the return of um, NASA astronauts launching from the US because uh, yes, yeah, because that's because um, the because of the uh, when the uh, shuttle retired um, in the noughties, um NASA astronauts since then, and indeed European astronauts, have been using the Russian Soyuz rockets and capsules launching from Kazakhstan to get to the ISS. So this sort of collaboration between the two um, space nations. Um, but that's us. That's eventually not going to be the case anymore, is it? I mean, eventually there's going to be a case when there's going to be a point at which uh, NASA astronauts aren't 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 launching on on Soyuz um, rockets to the ISS. That is. That is very much one of the aspects. Uh, NASA and the US have never particularly liked relying on the Russians to launch them into space. Um, There is some some political tension between those two countries, um, (laughs) as you might know. Um, And so it was always something that they've been trying for a long time for many years is is to, to get those launches back onto American soil. Um, and also, you know, now they can start offering them up to other people. Um, for instance, when Crew One launched, which was the first official NASA crew to launch on a commercial crew program uh, capsule, um, they had along with them they had three NASA astronauts, but they also had uh, a JAXA astronaut, Soichi Noguchi. Um, who was from Japan and the Japanese space agency had paid for him to go on that flight. 
Um, the, the Crew Dragon, and I should also mention that there is another crew capsule being developed, which is uh, Boeing's Starliner, which will hopefully be going into tests next year and be in, in operation soon afterwards. Um, but these are, as well as being more modern than the Soyuz, the Soyuz design has pretty much remained with minor changes. It's about 50 years old. Um, the, the, the Russians are very much, if it works, why mess with it? Um, but these ones, they're much more modern. They can carry up to s- seven people, whereas the Soyuz can only carry three people. Um, they're much more automated, so they're easier to use. They're easier to train astronauts on, and it takes a lot less time to train astronauts on. Um, and also, their plans are for them to be reusable, these commercial crew capsules, which is part of helping to bring costs down when they're flying astronauts into space. So hopefully there should be a bit of a, ch- a shift in how people get people to low Earth orbit, you know, whether that's the International Space Station or some other uh, space station that may be built in the future. Yeah, I think that is definitely one of the things that really springs to my mind is, is that reusability because, um, you know, as we know, the, the Soyuz um, rocket it, it's 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 a, it's a new one at every single launch isn't it because the mm. once it's once it's used it's just it just burns up in the atmosphere or, or lands in the ocean or whatever and it's not reused again um and i just kind yeah. of wonder if in decades to come will when all space launch systems are reusable will they look back at this time when we used to just use a rocket once and throw it away they'll just think what were they doing <laughs> yeah i do because it, it's like the, the comparison you always use, people use, is that it's like if you were trying to, every time you wanted to make a flight to New York or wherever you were going, you threw away the plane <laughs> after you'd done the flight. <laughs> it's just it's just ridiculous. And it's it's a bit silly that it's taken us this yeah. long. But uh, we just had to wait for technology to catch up. So hopefully we'll soon get... Because... You know, people have been since the beginning of trying to get into space. People have been trying to make their spacecraft reusable, but it's it's difficult. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to come back through the atmosphere in one place, let alone to try and land it in a way that means you can reuse yeah. it. And people thought they'd sort of got there with the space shuttle, but unfortunately, um, there was you know fourteen people lost their lives with accidents due to the space shuttle. So, the, the, hopefully, these these will be much safer. Um, and will be in use for a long time to come. Ian, what else has happened this year? Yeah, well, one of the one of the biggest stories of the year uh, for me in terms of um, reaction on on social media. So, sort of managing the the Sky Night Twitter and Facebook accounts, uh, it's quite easy to get uh, a sense of when things are exploding in social media for obvious reasons. And one of the big um, stories this year in, t- in terms of that from that. In that respect was um, Betelgeuse, which is, um, as most people will know. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which, yeah, which as most people will know is the uh, red giant star that um, forms the left shoulder of Orion, the constellation Orion in the night sky. Um, and yeah, as I said, it's a it's an aging red giant star, so it's due to um, go supernova and explode um, relatively soon in astronomical terms. Um, but if we if we cast our minds back to December 2019, um, this is when the story sort of begins because astronomers had noticed that Betelgeuse was was dimming, um, and then by February 2020, the news came through that the star was brightening again. And I uh, Betelgeuse is what's known as a variable star, so it's not actually unusual to see variations in its brightness over time. But on this occasion, the brightness, the uh, dimming, the brightness was falling far below what would be expected, and it was actually even noticeable by some amateur astronomers who were observing it in the night sky. But yeah, one of the one of the big big uh, studies was um, it was led by a team of astronomers led by uh, Dr. Miguel Montargues, and they were using the the very large telescope in the Chilean Atacama Desert, which is you know the uh, European Southern Observatory's facility out there. And they were observing Betelgeuse and they were actually able to observe features on the surface of the star. And they were able to see that the southern section of the star had experienced uh, this large drop uh, in brightness when they compared it to a previous image that had been captured in January 2019. And then astronomers from Villanova University in Pennsylvania in the US, uh, they predicted that Betelgeuse would increase in brightness again in February 2020, which it did. Um Mm. So I think p- part of the reason why people got so excited is because, as I said, there's this idea that 
Betelgeuse is, is eventually going to explode and, and could happen at any minute, And as I said, in astronomical terms. So that could be in a few years' time or it could be in sort of like a few hundred thousand years' time, couldn't it? Yes. So the the exact time that Betelgeuse is going to go, or Betelgeuse Betelgeuse, <laughs> um, is going to go supernova is, is one of those big questions of astronomy. Um, there was a recent paper that got released that said it might even be as long as a hundred thousand years from now um but again still in astronomical terms that's like next tuesday um so it's it's interesting to kind of see this this star which is relatively close by and being able to to look at it close up again in astronomical terms um and as it's going through these final stages and, and doing things like potentially belching out a, a massive cloud of gas <laughs> and making itself appear appear dim for a, a couple of weeks. Yeah, um, because that was that was really what, what ended up being the cause, or at least astronomers think, because so when it the story when the story broke about the dimming and the brightening again, people were on social media were saying, Oh, this is this is Betelgeuse, it's about to explode, this is what's happening, you know, and a lot of astronomers are quick to sort of say that's probably this is that's probably not really what's happening. Um, and one of the theories was mm. that uh, a clump of dust could be obscuring um, its light. Um, you know, a clump of dust could have been ejected in the direction of Earth, and it's obscuring the star's light as we see it from Earth. Um, and then a report came out um, by astronomers in August of this year using the Hubble Space Telescope, mm. and they pretty much inferred that that was the case. Um, it. They said that the dimming was caused by an ejection of hot material from the star into space, and this formed a dust cloud that blocked out starlight. Um, and so, sort of case closed, but but Betelgeuse is one of those stars that people um, get really excited about, and especially when this sort of thing happens. And it's because I think it's because when you're an astronomer or whenever you're first getting into stargazing, you know, or even if you're not actually getting into stargazing, like the Orion constellation is one of those constellations that most people can recognize it's so distinctive um and mm. it sort of you know heralds the, the 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 return of autumn and winter and um yeah as a result Betelgeuse because it's the left shoulder of Orion it's it's one of the first stars that you sort of learn to to name isn't it yeah it's, uh, so it's it's Betelgeuse uh, which I believe is the left left shoulder yeah so it's Orion. like our left shoulder so, like, so like the viewer's left shoulder yeah yeah, yeah. um it's it's very obvious that it's it's there. It's also quite obvious. Its red color is very obvious on contrast to the right foot, which is bridal, um, which is very yeah. blue. Um, and so there's 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 lots of things that you can see in Orion. Um, and it was definitely it was that and the Plough were the first constellations I ever learned when I was a yeah. kid. Um, and it was it was also the fact that because you could see. You, you mentioned earlier that amateur astronomers could tell that it was dimming, and it was—it was you could tell it was dimming without even using a telescope. It's just it was visible to the naked eye, and it's just this idea that the stars, which seem so permanent and unchangeable, um, that's kind of their thing. And then there's this one that you're really familiar with that just looks completely yeah. different. Um, it was it was a quite odd experience. Yeah. I, I was going to sort of say I think it's worth um, also pointing out. You know, if if you happen to be listening to this uh, podcast after Christmas and you've got you know a brand a brand new telescope for Christmas, you know it's it's Orion's Orion's good at the moment. You know, it's 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 visible in the night sky. It's high up. Why not why not head outside and see if you can mm. look at Betelgeuse through your through your telescope and and see if you can catch a glimpse of it. Um, mm. But sort of sort Absolutely. of going from from one star to another, um, and and sort of you know stellar life and 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 the cycles of of stars. Um, there was another big announcement this year in terms of our of our own sun, our, our own star, and it's because um, it's that solar cycle twenty five has begun. Astronomers have said um, so. The, our sun goes through peaks and troughs of activity. So the activity like those sunspots and coronal mass ejections and the flares and the outbursts. Um, it, it peaks and troughs every 11 years. Um, and I suppose part one of the things about the, the peaking and troughing is that you don't know that you've reached a peak and gone past it until you've already gone past it, and the same with the troughs. So, uh, but over the past few years, this kind of solar activity had been diminishing, which has sort of um, 
I guess it's 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 frustrating for you know astrophotography like um, photographing the sun or for you know solar observers. Um, but the good news in that respect is apparently Solar Cycle Twenty Five um, has now begun, um, and this mm-hmm. means that uh, we're going to be approaching a new solar maximum activity. And astronomers predict that this peak peak activity will happen sometime between November twenty twenty four and March twenty twenty six which is potentially good news if you like observing activity in the sun or if you like uh, indeed photographing it. Um, But there are also kind of wider implications for life on Earth because, you know, the sun's activity has a bearing on stuff like communication satellites and things like that. But I was also thinking about it in terms of, um, you know, NASA's wanting to return astronauts to the moon. Um, Because I think Mm. like during the Apollo missions, it wasn't really known, was it? The, the, the The sort of danger of... Uh, the potential danger of a of a huge outburst from the sun in in relation to humans on the moon it was they were aware that solar radiation was going to be an issue on the moon and some of the very early you know precursor missions to the apollo missions um quite a few of the ones that were done by the soviets actually one of the first things they measured was what is the radiation on the moon um and they quickly established that it's it's higher than it's on earth but you know a couple of days isn't going to hurt anybody permanently um so it was it was something that they were aware of but you know they were a lot less capable of predicting when a solar flare was going to happen um they'd never measured you know the radiation from a solar flare before um that didn't come until you know several years later when there was a lot more satellites in orbit mm. and things um so it was kind of it was one of those unknowns of they weren't sure like is this going to be a massive problem if somebody gets hit by a solar flare or not? Yeah, exactly. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just interesting because that that sort of knowledge of solar science and the and the the activity of the eleven year solar cycle, it's it's not just about seeing nice sunspots, is it? It's also about there's actually a danger here and a risk that you know to be avoided through our greater understanding mm. of yeah. of the sun's activity. Yeah, so the, there is a, actually a panel of uh, international experts um, called the Solar Cycle Prediction Panel um, who gather expert kind of predictions from all over the world, um, from, from all kinds of different sources and all different kinds of solar experts um, to predict you know, how strong they think the solar cycle is going to be, when they think the peak is going to be. Um, and that's partly for, for other solar scientists to look at because, you know, if you predict something and then you can compare what actually happens and you learn mm. a lot that way. Uh, but also for people like satellite operators or NASA um, when they're planning, you know, their, their, their Artemis missions because um, they want to know, you know, like, when is the peak going to be? And as you mentioned earlier, the peak's probably going to be around about 2024, 2025, which is exactly the time that the Artemis missions are planning to fly to the moon. Um, And uh, we actually have an interview with with a member of that panel in our January issue of Sky at Night, um, talking all about how, you know, they make those predictions. Um, So if that's of interest to you, I suggest you pick up the January issue and hopefully you can, can learn some more about that there. Now, as we were just talking about sending people to the moon, um, we have also this year, um, or at least China has, sent uh, a new mission to the surface of the moon. Um, In fact, it launched not long ago, uh, just on the 23rd of November, um, and landed a couple of weeks later on the 1st of December. This was the Chinese space agency's third trip to the moon, uh, with Chang'e 5, it was called. Uh, actually, I believe it's pronounced Chang'e 5, my apologies. Uh, and this was slightly different. Their previous two landers had just been um, rovers and, and science stations that were basically learning how to land on the moon. But Chang'e 5 is, is a sample return mission. Um, so as soon as it landed on the 1st of December, it immediately started scooping up um, some of the rock from the surface of the moon which it then is going to put into a return capsule that it will launch into orbit and return to Earth. Um, I say will because, unfortunately, we are recording this on the 11th of December and it's expected to return on the 16th of December. So when we're recording this, we don't know whether or not it was successful in that launch. Um, But when you're listening to it, you probably will. So hopefully everything went 
okay, uh, and it will be returning to Earth pretty soon. Uh, but that's quite exciting because that is the first time that we have had a sample of lunar rock since the Soviet Luna 24 returned in 1976. Because um, whilst it's the Apollo missions that are famous for returning uh, lunar soil, they're not the only sample return missions that have been to the moon. There are in fact three ones done by the Soviet Union that returned not a lot, <laughs> just a few, like less than a kilogram of material, which was, you know, like one rock from an Apollo mission. But um, there have been been several, you know, lunar samples brought back over the years. So that'll be really interesting seeing what this one looks like, um, especially because it comes from a slightly different area of, of the moon. It comes from what's called a, um, it comes from the lunar highlands, rather than most of the others, which were from the big basins. So that would hopefully be quite interesting. It's a lot, it, a lot of a younger surface is, is what they're hoping to bring back. So we'll get a bit more of a, a view of what the moon is like. How much um, do you think that we in the West will actually learn about the Chinese um, sample return mission? Because the Chinese space agency, they aren't particularly forthcoming with regards to their mm-hmm. their solar system exploration and their lunar exploration and, and images and, and things that we enjoy with NASA and the European, European Space Agency? Yeah, they, the Chinese are, are very much um, play their cards close to their chest. They don't tend to announce. They announce sort of like general launch dates of like, oh, it'll be sometime in December, but not specific dates until it's, you know, a couple of times before. Um, I was watching the, the landing and the live feed cut out just before the, the, the landing happened because they didn't want to show anything if it wasn't successful. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it's 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 tricky to know exactly what they're going to share. Yeah, um, I mean, I I, I, it, I I definitely find it frustrating from a kind of perspective, you know, um, spectators' point of view because, as I said, you know, with with something like NASA, with like something like the Cassini mission or the the Juno mission at Jupiter, or even just the Apollo missions, like like the the wealth of images and data and information and news and results that that are just freely available to anyone to look at and enjoy is is incredible. Um, mm-hmm. But China might be making all these amazing discoveries and creating, capturing all these amazing images, but we can't see them. Yeah, uh, I think in terms of their um, the, the the actual samples that they're returning, because. China is trying to, like, one of the reasons why it wants to have this kind of um, lunar program is to, to to show itself off as a technically advanced nation, to help foster, like, make its place is, as a scientific powerhouse in the world. And part of the way you do that is by collaborating with other people. Um, so I think that they will probably release some of the sample to, to other people, um, but I don't think it's going to be nearly as kind of like a free exchange as it might be with, with say, NASA or the European Space Agency. Yeah. Um, it is very diff- It is a very different way of doing things. Yeah. Um, so we'll have to see how that one goes. I do hope, you know, as I said, it's this, you know, it's the first time we've seen a sample from a young area of the moon. I say young, it's still, you know, like a billion years old <laughs> that these rocks were created. But that's significantly, you know, younger than the four billion year old rocks that Apollo brought back. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, there'll be a bit of exchange going on. However, uh, there is a slightly more open uh, space agency that's also returned a sample of rock to move, uh, rock to Earth, and that is Hayabusa 2 which is from the Japanese Space Exploration Agency, JAXA. Um, it's their second attempt at doing this. Hayabusa, uh, first, the first Hayabusa returned to Earth um, in 2015, I believe. Um, and, but Hayabusa 2, it wasn't to the moon, it was to an asteroid. In this case, it was an asteroid called Ryugu. Um, and Hayabusa 2 has been... Was, was flying around this asteroid for many years, um, for many months, sorry, and took a sample from the surface of the asteroid. And then in November 2019, 
started its journey home um, to bring this sample of space rock back to Earth, uh, where it could be studied in the world's premier labs. And that returned uh, on the 5th of December, so not that long ago. And it crashed down in a controlled manner. Everything was fine Hmm. Um, on the 5th of December into the outback of Australia, somewhere in Adelaide. And uh, after it crashed out, uh, it was quickly recovered by the JAXA team out in um, Australia. Um, It had to land in Australia rather than in Japan because um, basically Japan is a much smaller country with a lot more mountains and a lot more people crammed in, whereas Australia has these nice huge areas where there's no people that it can accidentally hit um it's very flat and it's very easy to 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 be able to you know spot a spacecraft that's just landed on the ground um so once it landed it was picked up by 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 jaxa um and is now being very carefully transported to um, a secure facility where it can be opened um, and it's partly it needs to be a secure facility because they don't want to contaminate it. You know, they went to a lot of trouble to go to an asteroid, pick up a rock and bring back a pristine sample that hasn't been contaminated like um, meteorites have been. Um, so they want to make sure that, you know, like the air doesn't get in. There's no water. There's no contamination of any sort. Um, but also um, it's it's part of planetary protection measures for our planet, Uh it's considered very, 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 very unlikely that there's any form of life on an asteroid. There's no flowing water, there's no atmosphere, there's none of the things that we think you need to form life. Um, however, there might be organic materials. Um, and so when you are opening up a sample that's come back from another world, you do have to, to put some, some checks and measures in place just in case. <laughs> We really don't want to be releasing, you know, at the end of this year, specifically in the end of 2020, you want to be very careful when you're opening up your space rock. (laughs) One of the things that I I love about these sample return missions is the the idea that they they keep a lot of the samples in in storage don't they for kind of sort of decades to come until Mm -hmm. technology and and knowledge um um has progressed and you know perhaps stuff that we're not Mm -hmm. able to do on earth now in you know 50 years time they might be able to do with those samples so maybe you know future future students of uh of planetary science will and astrobiology will be will be you know examining these samples for for decades to come it's really really exciting yes uh so i remember back when the 50th anniversary of the apollo 11 landing rolled around they decided that would be a good opportunity to thaw out (laughs) some of the Apollo 11 samples um, and and they basically, you know, uh, people could apply to to be able to use these carefully curated space rocks um, and measure their, use those samples for for whatever particular um, scientific endeavour they were doing at the time. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, our gift to the present, but also to the future <laughs> of people. And they can look, look and see when in the future, uh, when we have a bit more of an idea of what's going on in the solar system, hopefully, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose that, that brings us on nicely to, you know, what what, what has sort of become the biggest story of the year in, in many ways, um, even though it was sort of late contender. Um, and it was the announcement um a few months ago of the discovery of a rare molecule on Venus called phosphine. Um, mm. This sort of rare molecule that's on Earth, it's only made uh, either industrially or by microbes that survive in oxygen-free environments. Um, and astronomers detected it in the clouds of Venus. So the the main crux of the story was this is a potential sign of microbial life existing on Venus. Um, the discovery was made by astronomers led by Jane Greaves at Cardiff University in Wales, and they were able to observe Venus at a wavelength of one millimetre, so they were able to sort of see beyond what can be seen by the human eye. Um, and yeah, that was that was the big discovery, was was um, this molecule known as phosphine. And of course, you know, uh, you know, just because they've discovered something that could potentially be what's known as a biosignature or a biomarker indicating the presence of life doesn't mean that this is actually the case. Um, there were um, sort of alternative theories put forward that you know the phosphine could be produced naturally by sunlight or it could be minerals from beneath the clouds being blown upwards 
Um, but the team behind the, the study said that none of those sources could actually produce the amount that they detected. Um, mm-hmm. And the other aspect of it is, I suppose, that um, if it is microbes producing uh, the phosphine molecule, they would have to be very different to those the same um, microbes that we find on Earth because, as we know, Venus is an absolutely hellish planet. It's probably the last place you might expect to find life in the solar system, you know, scorching temperatures, acidic clouds, po- poisonous atmosphere. Um, yeah, um, it was, it was a, bit, think, bit, a bit of a bit of a shock, wasn't it, Es? Yeah, I think also it, it it was one of the things that really surprised me is it's not even just you know this horrible caustic atmosphere. It's that it's you know the turbulence in it basically means that if there were any microbes, they'd effectively be ground up. <laughs> so it's just like they'd be be like physically so abused that anything that we have on 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 earth would probably not be able to survive yeah um and yet they might be able to exist in the clouds of venus um and there's been a couple of other signs over the years that there might be something strange going on um for instance there's these these patches of uv radiation um that appear in various points, parts of, of Venus's atmosphere, kind of with a seasonal variation. And so people have speculated that this might be some form of life, kind of, you know, having a seasonal life cycle. Um, as both you and the people announcing the phosphine discovery were very, very pay- uh, pains to point out, um, it's not a definite, definite um detection of life yeah. by any means it's it's more we've discounted all of the other possibilities that we can think of um but there might be another one yeah um so it's it's definitely for me because i've always very much thought that venus doesn't get the respect it deserves <laughs> <laughs> Um, everybody's always, you know, sending things to Mars because that's where they think there might be life. But actually, Venus is just like a really interesting planet. Um, um, But because it is so difficult to land on, um, humanity has actually landed on the surface of Venus. The the Soviet Venera missions managed it back in the 70s and 80s. Um, But they could only survive for about an hour, um, which meant that people sort of thought, well, there's not much point going anymore. Um, you can't do anything when you get there and sort of ignoring it. Um, but now there's a lot of missions that are being planned that rather than trying to land on the surface, um, float instead want to float along in Venus's atmosphere, mm. um, which now it seems it's like that might be where all the interesting stuff is anyway. Yeah. So the idea that there might be more things going back to, to investigate venus's atmosphere and discover what this whole phosphine thing actually is and what's going on um i'm, I'm really excited to see yeah definitely i mean i also also heard about a, a nasa project that would um put a rover on venus but not not a rover controlled by electronics because you know it's difficult to do that without having them melt um but yeah. sort of like a, like, a, like a sort of clockwork rover that would maybe you know um sort of like a, a mechanical rover that would be powered by wind or something like that and kind of roll along and send back data. But it was definitely interesting. And it's, it's one of the first things I thought when this phosphine uh, story um, broke was that, um, yeah, so we're, planetary science is currently, you know, really, really concerned with finding evidence of life elsewhere in the solar system beyond Earth. And of course, we're looking at Mars, but we're also looking at the subsurface oceans of icy moons in the solar system, like Enceladus at Saturn or Europa at Jupiter, because, you know, liquid, mm. liquid, salty liquid oceans, you know, prime place potentially to find life. And wouldn't it be funny if we were sort of, if we were sort of looking the other way and in, and in <laughs> fact we find life on our poisonous, hellish, horrendous neighbour? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's one of those things that they found when they were looking for, for life on Earth. Um, is basically every time that they thought it's like, oh, there is no way that life could survive in, <laughs> in, in a volcano or in this pit of acid. And then they go and they look and it's like, oh, nope, there's there's some bacteria just doing their thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
So yeah. Um, but it's, I think you know potentially as well if it, if it's sort of looking for biomarkers or biosignatures in the clouds of a planet, it also it also potentially has implications for the search for signs of life, you know, on exoplanets, you know, planets beyond our our solar system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's still a lot more to come out of this story. Um, but I, I just wanted to close talking about this this story with. Something that Chris Lintott said, the uh, co-presenter of The Sky at Night, when the, the Sky at Night special came out, um, uh, Chris Lintott was doing his piece to the camera and he said, um, you know, big science discoveries don't don't begin with someone jumping up from their chair and shouting Eureka. Big science discoveries, discoveries come from a scientist looking at a piece of paper and going, oh, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the case with, with this discovery. Yeah, absolutely. Um and, you know, it's it's very much it's an ongoing story. There's, you know, dozens of, of papers have already been published on it. Quite a few sort of saying it's like, oh, this is what we think it might be instead of life. And other people saying, like, looking in other ways that life might be able to survive. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is that um, we won't know until somebody sends something to Venus to actually go and see. It's like, huh. What is this weird thing? So that's one to look forward to in the next decade or so. Now, having just uh, poo-pooed all of the missions that go to Mars, uh, this year actually we see three, saw three missions begin their journey across to the red planet. That was the Perseverance rover uh, from NASA, which will go to the planet, uh, landing in about February, we hope. All of these missions will hopefully get there in about February. Um, will hopefully land on the surface, collect up caches of rock, which it will then, a future mission will come along and hopefully return to Earth. There's also the Chinese Tianwen-1 rover, which is... China's first attempt to even get to Mars. Um, There will be an orbiter that will remain around the planet as well as a rover that will go across the surface. Uh, And that one's just pretty much a sort of, you know, learning how to rove across the surface of Mars as part of China's efforts to get further out into the solar system. And then finally, there is a new player into the space game from the United Arab Emirates. And this is their first big planetary mission and their HOPE orbiter that will be going to the planet and looking at the atmosphere. And all of those missions will be getting to the red planet in around February. So those are ones that definitely to look forward to next year. So that's it in terms of space flight and general space news from 2020. But now for what happened in terms of stargazing, I'm going to pass you over to our editor, Chris Bramley, and our reviews editor, Paul Money. 2020 has been a great year for stargazing, and I'm joined by longtime observer and the magazine's reviews editor, Paul Money, to discuss some of the highlights from this year's night sky. Now, at the start of the year, um, Venus was a lovely object in the night sky wasn't it Paul? Oh it was absolutely gorgeous and uh, you know just the Christmas prior you could have almost said it was the Christmas star so it really led us into the year because when it's in the evening sky people notice it you know and we had it for months you know it lingered Mm. in the sky until May and uh, I always remember because with the lockdown um, May time I actually had the neighbours stood in their garden because Mercury joined it and for the first time Mm. many of my neighbours saw Mercury because Venus guided it to Mercury. So naked eye, yeah. it was quite a spectacle. Well, it's always great in the evening sky, isn't it? Everybody notices it then. How many notice it in the morning? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's it's um slightly more so shall we say antisocial in the morning, but um it was it was it was just just right, wasn't it? It was high up high up enough for it to be visible and just at that right time set against the beautiful twilight um glow of the of the night sky um a really special a special thing and there were some lovely conjunctions weren't there yes i mean i always like it when it gets close to the pleiades although you can almost guarantee it's going to be cloudy isn't it mm, but uh, mm. you know but it, the, the pleiades are the one i always look forward to those it takes every few years before this happens again so we have mm. to wait a few years before venus is close to the pleiades but that is a gorgeous grouping you know with this brilliant planet uh, just hanging there below the pleiades and in this case this year it passed buy it um but mm. uh, you know so and again it allows you to show people something they probably wouldn't notice before because they've got a really brilliant marker i mean you, you can't mistake yeah. venus i mean it's the brightest yeah. planet of the whole lot 
So, of course, um, uh, after um, Venus was a, a, an evening star, it uh, went into conjunction with the sun. Um, that means it aligned up with the sun and, and came out the other side, on the other side of the sun. Um, at that point, it was a, a morning star, wasn't it, Paul? Yes, it becomes antisocial yeah. again, doesn't it, sort of thing. Unless you're a really clean nutter like me, oh, sorry, astronomer like me, then uh, most normal people don't see the morning star. But having said that, you know, lots of people do walk their dogs and whatnot, and the rare, pe- the rare person around us walks their cat <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> as well. But, and they get to see the morning. And I have to say, the morning sky, I, I really ought to get up uh, more in the morning sky because the morning sky is mm. glorious. You know, often you find the atmosphere is a lot more settled mm. and to see Venus brilliantly shining there in the morning, it's uh, mm. quite something. Mm. Now, um, uh, the other n- next up on our list of highlights um, in 2020 um, was a rather unexpected object, wasn't it, that we didn't really have much warning of. Um, of course, I'm talking about uh, Comet Neowise. I mean, we wait for ages. We literally wait years. Mm. <laughs> you you feel yourself aging, waiting for another another bright comet to come along, and then, as you say, suddenly it springs onto the scene nearwise. And mm. and what a comet as well! Um, a lot of people tried to compare it with, say, Hale Bop in nineteen ninety seven, mm. and that was that was exceptional. That was phenomenally bright for months on end. But mm. we did have a month, say, month and a half, where nearwise was a naked object very low mm. on the northern horizon that and, and that did cause i mean it caused problems for me because the houses were in the way uh, yes. so uh, i mean at one point i actually climbed up the ladder <laughs> and next <laughs> to our conservatory to look over the top of the conservatory <laughs> what yeah. the neighbors must have thought i have no idea <laughs> now that's real <laughs> but dedication. i got my first glimpse of it like that you know but yeah. after that um with lockdown i was able to go out into the middle of the street when it was dark mm. and everybody had gone to bed and there mm. it was just hanging there above the houses i mean it was spectacular mm. it's quite a it's quite um uh it's breathtaking when you when you see this thing isn't isn't it because you're you kind of hear about it online or um on the radio or something that this is this is comet in the sky and you 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 go out yourself to go and have a look for it you don't quite you know you're not, you're not quite sure whether it, until you've seen it with your own eyes, you're not quite sure that it that what they're saying is actually true. And then, and then, I remember um, I was I was up in um, in Northumberland uh, for a summer summer break, and um, the sky was wonderfully dark there. And, and um, I took the opportunity to go out um, after the kids had gone to bed with a pair of binoculars um, and was just um, just panning around. I think it was in um, Ursa Major at the time. Um, it's just panning around the area where it where the, where um, it was said that it was, and 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 all of a sudden I I saw it, and it was just you know took my breath away, just to see that that kind of glow just hanging there in the in in the sky. I was going to say it would have made experience. you gasp, wouldn't it? Yeah, it did. It did definitely. Um, and if we you know in binoculars, it was it was very it was very apparent. Um, that there was this kind of brightening of the sky, and you could even, you know, after after a couple of minutes of of looking at it and studying the area, your eyes just zone in a bit more, and and you get to see a bit more detail, don't you? Yes, the dark adaption kicks in, and it makes mm, a difference mm. for the faint part of the tail. Um, mm. It was interesting that uh, you know, I mean, I had, an, as I said, I was out um, late at night when everybody had gone to bed. It was pitch dark. The lights, the street lights had gone out. Yay! <laughs> so that really made a difference. And of course, nobody was going anywhere. People at the point weren't driving to work because most people weren't yeah. going into work. So, um, so I was able to set up in the street in front of the house. Uh, it's grandstand view. I mean, if it wasn't for everybody going back to work, I'd. Still I'd probably do it now, <laughs> but, uh, but but the, um, the the fun thing for me was I was there observing. I'd got my camera gear set up, imaging the comet on a on a star tracker, and suddenly I became aware because you're dark adapted. I I could see somebody was bicycling down the street towards me, and as they mm. got close, of course, that they, they, they sort of realised I was there. Went round me. It was a neighbour. They'd only moved in a few months earlier, sort of thing, just before lockdown, and mm. uh, the lady was coming back, and she'd been shelf stacking at Tesco's. Late night. Oh yeah. And I, I turned around and said, Do you want to look at a comet? Well, I nearly fricked the living daylights out of her because she didn't know I was there. 
Oh, dear. <laughs> but, but when she overcome the shock, she looked at the back of the camera and was absolutely gobsmacked, mm. and she'd not noticed it. And then when she looked with mm. the naked eye, she suddenly, oh, wow, I can see a mm. naked eye. And that, mm, that was, mm. and after that, she was absolutely enamored. And then she went in, brought some binoculars out, and stood obviously a proper distance away from me. And I was looking mm. with binoculars, and she was, and I was explaining what the features were. So oh, uh, you know, it, yeah. it was quite a moment. But I say, I nearly knocked her off a bike because I just called out, <laughs> "Would you like to see a comet?" <laughs> and yes. So to her, this disembodied voice in the darkness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was such a magical experience for her to see it because she'd never seen yeah. a comet before. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and I think um, it has been, up before Neowise, I mean, <clears throat> there was a long period, wasn't there, uh, <clears throat> um, between Neowise and the previous um, Bright Hail Comet? Hail Bob, in 97, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, mean we had a, a few a... that were binoculars, but it's not. Mm. it doesn't have the same public draw. It's got to be naked eye for the public yeah. really to get excited. And yes. uh, we had a few promising ones, ISON, I remember sort of mm. thing, and it completely mm. disintegrated. It totally, yeah. oh, the expectations were so high for that. So to get yeah. Neowise to surprise us like that, uh, it, it, that's going to be sticking with me for a very, very long time. Just like we're talking about Hale Bop now, all yes. these years later, you know, sort of thing. We'll be talking about Neowise for a few years, unless, of course, we have another sudden surprise, no. which would be nice for 20. It'd be nice. Although yeah. I have to say, seeing Neowise as a, they are supposed to be harbingers of doom, you know, so considering. 2020 <laughs> yeah it is quite um well you know these things are uh myth mythological and and kind of legendary aren't they um uh the demise so of kings i don't know how much how much store we should put in put by that but um True. of course there is that there is that there in our in kind of popular culture isn't there that they are harbingers of doom and and they they appear at moments of great trial and tribulation uh, in in uh, in societies and stuff, and you know, seeing what we've we're going through this year, it it, it kind of it's it pretty was fitting. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not to say that it was um, that it kind of backs up or or in any way adds adds any credence to to that, but it's just an extra a thing, a, 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 an extra kind of. Um, anecdote to observe isn't it that, that, that's um, true and when you think that really we have loads of comets per year most of yeah, them are binoculars or telescopes and usually telescopes so there's yeah. lots of comets up there but you don't hear a word about them do you so it's only no, when they get right. naked eye uh, yes. and, a, and a certain um, non-astronomer let's put them <laughs> I won't use the word <laughs> start yes. here crowing on about how it will change your life sort of thing you know <laughs> yeah yeah but um, yeah, that was around for a long time, uh, for for a month, uh, uh, near wise, and um, gave a lot of you know it was a it was a great sight. I mean, it, you know, you could go out, um, it, you know, with clear skies, you could go out um, night after night and go and go and have a look at it. So it was a wonderful um, thing to see in the summer. And we um, did, didn't we? Because we had a run of really good clear nights. Yeah. We, you know, yes. up until sort of August. August when everything went wrong with the sky. Yes, that's uh, right. You know, yeah. But up until then, we'd actually done extremely well with a lot of good weather and observing. So a lot of people yeah. were looking up. So that really helped yeah. having a bright comet suddenly surprise us like that. That's right. That's right. Um, a lovely thing. A lovely thing. And um, we were quite, quite spoilt uh, towards the... From moving on from that to the into the end of the summer and into a, into autumn, weren't we? Because um, we had um, another bright object in the sky. This one we knew about and, and was expected um, a bit more. Uh, slightly slightly redder and a bit more <laughs> a bit more um, a bit more defined in the night sky, shall we say? Um, and this was the um, uh, the opposition of Mars. Um, that actually happened in October, um, but it was visible for a, for a, quite a few months le- in the lead up to that. Um, why why was it special this year? Mars's opposition because they happen quite regularly, don't they, Paul? But this one but, was quite special. Yeah. Yes, they do. I mean, roughly every two years we have an opposition of Mars, but the problem is Mars's orbit is actually elliptical. And so mm. the distance between the Earth and Mars can vary tremendously from opposition to opposition. So we have mm. a cycle of about 15 years where you get Mars and Earth really close by. Now, that actually happened two years ago. 
But unfortunately mm. for us, Mars was really low. It was down sort of like on the borders of Sagittarius and Capricornus. So that's really awful for us for the UK yeah. and northern latitudes, which is mm. why, ironically, usually the next opposition is better for us. And, and it has been an absolute treat. Mm. Um, I mean, it? we haven't had yeah. that many clear nights, but we did have clear nights in the lead up to opposition. And in fact, the mm -hmm. closest was on the 6th. The opposition was on the 13th, but the closest mm. was on the 6th. The slightly mm. out of step, but uh, it meant it was it was only about one arc second smaller than the opposition mm. of um, twenty eighteen, which was the best yes. one since the two thousand and three one. So yes. you know, it, we we were looking forward to it, and we have not been disappointed. The detail on Mars that I've seen and many people have imaged and viewed has been brilliant. And of course, as you yeah. say, it's a really brilliant, bright orange star. The number of people said yeah. to me, "Oh, what's that fiery orange star? I've never seen that before." I said, "Well, you know, that's because it's." a planet <laughs> mm, that's right <laughs> yeah um and it, uh, like you say um to, to the naked eye um and in binoculars it, it um it's it's a it's a point it's it's more or less a point source it, it's it's a bright a very bright object kind of salmon salmon pink orange color but with um with with uh with a photograph in a, um in a telescope with a camera in a telescope you really you really see some good detail and with it being um close and high up in the sky um away from the kind of the murk in the lower atmosphere where the where the air currents are moving around and it shimmers a lot we've we've seen on the magazine we've seen some absolutely stunning images of detail uh, the so-called albedo features on the surface of the of mars um just just some there's just been some lovely things ice caps um, even some even some evidence of clouds that you can see, isn't there, isn't there Paul? Yeah, I mean, the people like Damien Peach and uh, Pete Lawrence and uh, Martin Lewis, etc., the, the, the images they're producing, they're actually starting to see features, uh, physical features on Mars. And uh, one thing that really struck me was the, the number of people who have managed to image Malus Marineris and craters, the largest craters on Mars. Well, Damien Peach's wow. pictures have been just... Mm. They, they knock you out because mm. you'd never imagine am, amateurs could do it image like that. Admittedly, he had a, a access to the one-metre telescope in Chile. <laughs> but even <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, I, I tested, I, I forget now the review telescope, and in October I had, I think it was a beginner's scope um, mm. for our December issue. And um, even with that, and it wasn't a large telescope, I managed to put the magnification up and I could see the polar cap and I could see the albedo features. Uh, the problem mm. with Mars is that most of the time it's small. So when it is large in the eyepiece, you know, it's uh, it's not moon size. That's that's the usual myth that goes around mm -hmm. sort of thing mm -hmm. when Mars comes to opposition. But yeah, the fact that something like that could show the albedo features and uh, as you say, the ice cap, just to see the ice cap is something, this bright white mm. patch mm. Uh, on the edge of the Mars. So yeah, mm. I mean, and the detail. And I was quite excited this year because although I've done it in the past, um, I got my clearest views of the two moons, Phobos and Deimos. Now, so, oh, now uh, they're tiny amateurs, little things, aren't they? They are tiny. They're, they're phenomenally small. So, you know, to mm. actually see them and then image them. And uh, in mm. one case, I imaged them with my seven-inch telescope instead of the, the really large one. So, mm. uh, you know, but the key with seeing them is really you need an occulting bar to block out the glare of Mars, and then it makes ah, it right. easier. So that's a yes. little tip that uh, amateurs can use, you know, using yeah. a colting bar to block the light of the planet. But uh, yeah. it was just something, it was a real treat. So it, it, it and Neowise, it really has helped make up for this year, I have to say. Mm, mm. Good. And of course, in many ways, the the best is yet to come um, because uh, as we speak, um, two other planets, Jupiter and Saturn, are uh, getting closer and closer in the night sky. Um, and later this later this month on the on the twenty first on the winter solstice, the evening of the winter solstice, they will be um the closest they've been for almost four hundred years. I think it was 1623. Um, I, I, I stand to be corrected, but I, I'm sure I read yes. that as 1623. 1623! Oh, that's incredible, you know, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, they are so close. Almost. It, it, Saturn is fainter than Jupiter, so Jupiter is going to mm. dominate. And this is why mm. I suspect it may, to some people, look like one bright object. Um, mm. But 
the fact that they are converging, and uh, I, I managed to image them um, a few a, a, about a week ago uh, mm. before this. Uh, so it was about two weeks before this goes out, and uh, you know they were getting close. They're inside the field of view. Uh, they were about two degrees apart, and so yes. they're getting closer. And of course, we've had clouds since then, but we've just yeah. got to hope we get that one gap on the twenty mm. first that it actually clears up. Because I, I will have never seen Jupiter and Saturn this close. As you say, I wasn't around no. in sixteen twenty three. <laughs> so you know, but uh, it's they ha- they have been fairly close, but it's usually a few degrees apart, and that's it. So to be yes, though, yeah. you'll be able to look at them in a telescope in the same field of view. You know, that's that just, I mean, that's just mind-boggling, isn't it? it? I mean, is. you'll be able to see if you put some magnification on there, you'd 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 be able to see the moon, the moons as well, wouldn't you? Around around both of those planets, and it's just going to be a, a remarkable sight. I mean, to see, I mean, you'll have the moons, you'll have the Galilean moons, you'll have the bands of Jupiter, you'll have the rings of Saturn, you'll have Titan of Saturn as well. And the bigger the scope you've got, you can add another four or five moons to Saturn as well. So, uh, you know, it, yeah. you know it, 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 it's such a, a rare event. This is why we'll yes. be crying if it's cloudy. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it is quite low down, isn't it? In the, um, in the, it's in the southwest, isn't it? The, the it's people very low in the southwest twilight. And that, yes. that's is a, um, a a problem. But, you know, yeah. um, you've got to catch them before they set. So that's going to be the absolute yes. crucial thing. So once you've got them, yeah. you know, uh, get you know get them early. So, so as soon as sunset's gone yeah. down, sun's gone down, look towards the southwest. Jupiter will be appearing first out of the twilight and then get your imaging yeah. rig or scope set up or binoculars even. Binoculars will mm. definitely separate them. They'll they'll be clearly mm. separated mm. in binoculars. But if you've got a telescope, it's this is the rare time. Look through a telescope and you'll see them yeah. both in the same field of view. That, that yeah. for me, is going to be the wow factor. That's right. I mean, to be, you know, this, this hasn't been possible uh, since 1623. And I think um, the last time it was possible, we were only just... We'd, um, humans had only just invented telescopes. So Literally really, 13 years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So really, this really is the closest, one of the, the closest conjunction of the telescopic age. Um you know, and and it's a hell of a long time to wait, so it better not be cloudy. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, but I, I tell you, I was um, I was out for a walk on um, on Saturday Saturday night. It was lovely and clear where I where I am, um, and just just even now to see Jupiter and Saturn so close together, like you say, about two degrees apart. Um, that's about probably about what is it? A, a couple of three or four fingers. Width yeah. if, with your hand yeah. outstretched. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they're so close together even now that they really are striking. Um, they're a striking sight even now. So as they get closer over the over the next weeks up to the 21st of December, it's, it's going to be, um, it's just a treat. It's just a treat to watch every night, you know. Um, and so, of course, you know, at this time of year... <laughs> yes, well, it's you know. just so interesting that it's the twenty first of December sort of thing, and literally four days later we've got Christmas Day, and yes. uh, so there's going to be lots of comments about the Christmas star. Uh, but of course, right. by Christmas Day they will have started to separate, and they'll be easily separable. But yeah, yes. it's just an interesting time of year for this to happen, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like, like another another kind of myth and, and another kind of um, story, uh, cultural story that that. Um, We've told ourselves for you know centuries in the in the West, um, you know it's it's got nothing scientific behind it. But it again, it's just nice to know that it's just nice to have that to have that knowledge that to know that these stories have been around in a pre scientific time, and and you know it's how people people in those in those times explained their natural world and the phenomena they saw perhaps didn't understand back then we know now why why they happen with the orbits of the planets and and how they're kind of you know once in a while they all they all line up so that they all appear together um but it's just i i find it it just adds that little bit extra to to the site doesn't it the little bit of knowledge that you've got there just you can you can ponder it while you're looking up there and it's just something else to think about while you're while you're beholding the beholding the spectacle. Yes, yes, you you can appreciate it and sort of and, and it whether you have a connotation with it with that I don't know, it's up to you, but you're yeah. free to think what you like, you know, it's yeah, exactly, it's just yeah. an interesting spectacle and you say naked eye, it it, it is. It's going to be something yeah. to look out yeah. over Christmas as well. That's right, that's right. Um so 
Um, Jupiter and Saturn are going to be with us into 2021, aren't they, Paul? Um, and as we go into next year, what are what are the what are a few of the things you're looking forward to um, in in the in the next 12 months? Well, fun enough, you mentioned Jupiter and Saturn. In January, on the 10th, they're very low down in the twilight, so even harder to see, but they'll be joined by Mercury. So you'll have mm. three forming a little tight triangle um, in the evening sky. And I, mm. the biggest problem, will I think Saturn is going to be the faintest, so that's the one we're going to lose first in the twilight. So, you know, that's a key to look out for shortly after sunset. <clears throat> Give it about mm. half an hour after sunset. So uh, that's January the 10th sort of thing as Mercury joins them. In fact, Mercury is moving up and becoming visible during uh, the first week or two of January. Um, mm. It'll be low down, but the fact that it'll pass Jupiter and Saturn uh, from the, about the 9th through to the 12th sort of thing is, is going to add to the spectacle. So that's something I'll want to try and see as well, just as an added bonus. An encore, mm. as you might say, to the, uh, to the yeah. uh, fantastic 21st conjunction. Uh, so, yes. uh, you know, so that'll be something. Um, yeah. So, But then we'll lose them, and the, but they'll return back to the morning sky and uh, later in the year, mm. in actual fact, within a few weeks they are it almost happens again but in the morning sky but again you've right. got more bright morning twilight to take into account and of course it's in the morning so yes. so most of us are sensible enough to be in bed <laughs> i suspect <laughs> by then but uh, but other than that you know we've got um Mars is actually it's one Mars is one of those odd planets and then it seems to linger. We've had mm. the the conju- the, the, the opposition in mm. October but it's still there bright in the evening sky and it'll be there for several months into 2021. And in particular mm. during March it passes underneath the Pleiades star cluster. So uh, cool, I nice. love yeah. I love conjunctions with the planets and the Pleiades. They're just mm. they're almost like they're drawn together. So uh, that's something to look forward to in march sort of thing you know i mean that's a lovely that's a lovely sight anyway the pleiades on its own but to have a to have an, another an orange um, bright star an orange star yeah yeah yes passing, exactly cl- passing close by that's going to be wonderful that'll make a nice one yeah. for the photographers especially wide mm. field to get the pleiades mm. and mars there uh, so mm. uh, again fingers crossed that we don't have any clouds or whatsoever oh. yeah, it's always the same isn't it um the other thing is uh, i mean we don't get many eclipses in this country uh, sadly mm. especially solar eclipses but we do get a uh, quite decent partial solar eclipse on June the 10th. So uh, mm. that's well worth looking out for. Obviously, you've got to use, uh, be careful in how you observe it, use proper safety filters for observing it, both visually and imaging. But that'll be quite mm. something to see uh, on June the 10th to actually look out for that. And of course, it's daytime, so, so you don't have to get yeah. up at night <laughs> or anything like that. You're no during the daytime. <laughs> so again, this is yeah. where you hope for a nice sunny day <laughs> so you can actually observe that. But you know what? Mm, it's interesting mm. now that um, now we've got the internet and we've got so many streaming services, so many observatories are now showing live feeds of these things. You don't have to wait for the eclipse to occur in our country. You know, That's right. You can yeah. now watch them um, sort mm. of thing whenever they occur because there's so many observatories that do, and, and amateur groups that live stream these events. So, uh, yes. you know, so there, are, so there are other things to look out for in the year. But I say for personally seeing it, physically going outside, using a specially filtered telescope to see it for yourself I think is always a special moment you know to yes. see an eclipse progressing uh, yeah. so uh, of course we've got to, I can't remember when the year is but we've got to wait a very very long time before we have a proper total eclipse and in fact yes. I'm not sure if me and thee are going to be around <laughs> <laughs> for the next proper total eclipse. But uh, well, that's, that's how long they take to pass over a similar yeah. region. Uh, well, I'll take, that, I'll take this opportunity anyway. It's certainly, exactly. even though it's not a total eclipse, it's still a unique and unusual, a usual, unusual sight to see, you know, the disk of the sun with a little yeah. chunk taken out of it. Um, as the as the moon passes passes in front, it's yeah, it's quite it's quite unique and you know it's it's very un, it's very unusual. Um, so yeah, I'm look, I'm really looking forward to that. To give you an idea of how excited I get, sort of thing. Many many years ago, there was an eight percent partial eclipse of the sun. Now you can imagine that's a very 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 tiny bit of the sun taken out, and I still got excited. <laughs> In fact, we even organised a public viewing event, and lots of people came to view the sun and see this very tiny. <laughs> 
little tiny bit, and you had to be uh, observing, you know, literally within a window of about ten minutes to see it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, but uh, so I, I must lead a sad life. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, Paul. Not at all. Your 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 dedication is to be commended. Um, well, Paul, thanks very much for um, talking to me to about the um, about the the delights uh, of the night sky in twenty twenty, and I hope that gives you a little bit of flavour for what's coming up in twenty twenty one. I hope we'll all have some uh, clear skies and keep looking up. The Geminid meteor shower often grabs the limelight in December, but it's also well worth keeping an eye out for the Ursids. This year's Ursid meteor shower's peak occurs just before Christmas on the morning of Tuesday the 22nd of December, making the best observing periods on the night before, during the night of the 21st and 22nd, and the night after, on the 22nd and 23rd. Fortunately, the moon is near its first quarter at this time and will set early on the two evenings by midnight on the 21st and 1am on the 22nd, giving plenty of time to watch the Ursids in the early hours of the morning before sunrise. The average peak rate is expected to be around 10 meteors per hour, but there are some spikes that may take place specifically around 5.27am and 6.10am on the 22nd, when the rate of shooting stars could be higher. The shower is named the Ursids because the meteors appear to radiate from the direction of the constellation of Ursia Minor when they're viewed from Earth. The Ursids occur when Earth passes through the trail of dust and debris left by Comet 8P Tuttle. To get the best chance of viewing these shooting stars, try and get to a dark sky location that's well away from city lights. And the good news is that they are easy to spot with the naked eye, as you'll get a wider field of view than with a telescope or binoculars. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about what's coming up in 2021 in the January issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we will also take a look back at the Apollo 14 mission, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, teach you all the tips you need to get the most out of your first telescope, and let you know all the questions you need if you want to buy some second-hand equipment to upgrade it. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky Find the right equipment to observe it with and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.